Bart Campolo is just one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He's a humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California, the host of a fantastic podcast called Humanize Me, and the author of a new book written with his evangelical Christian father, Tony Campolo, called Why I Left, Why I Stayed. Bart, if you haven't figured it out already, is the one who left. He left Christianity. The book is all about that conflict and their love for each other and how they can both advocate for beliefs that are in direct competition with each other without losing their own bond. Bart, thank you so much for being with me. Oh, man, it's always great to be with you. Uh, I have to say, the last time I talked to you, it's still one of the my favorite podcasting experiences just because I... Uh, it was just a mind-blowing experience to talk to you about life and death and all that interesting stuff. Today, we'll steer a little away from that, um, just because I'm talk so... Talk about family, which feels yeah. like life and death. Yes. Right, exactly. To, to focus on kind of this work. But before I get into that, let me ask you, what is your status right now at USC? Are you still working there? Are you just volunteering there? Are you salaried? What's the deal? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um I, I'm the humanist chaplain at USC, but that's always been an unpaid position. Um, and so all the other people, all the other sort of religious leaders on campus, you know, they, they get supported by their communities. So, you know, the Jewish, the, the Hillel and Chabad, the Jewish community supports those people. They have big staffs, the Catholic center, all the evangelical ministries. And so when I got here, I thought that if I would establish that I could rally a bunch of secular young people together and, and kind of inspire them to live lives of meaning and purpose and belonging and, 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 and to, to kind of create this wonderful um, community on campus that the secular community would go like, that's great. We'll support you the way that all those other communities support theirs. It has not worked out that way, Emma. <laughs> It's it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but uh, Greg Epstein, who you mentioned in your book, who leads the community at Harvard, um, he's kind of come under the same sort of thing where, yes, it's affiliated with the school in a loose sort of way as part of their religious community, but he has to do his own fundraising, too, to keep them afloat. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that it's, it's interesting because the, the president of USC and the provost of USC recently became aware of me because I got written up in the New York Times um, and, uh, and they called my Dean and said, how do we get this guy to do, how, how have we got this guy doing this work for us for free? Yeah. And, um, and my Dean came to me and he was sort of joking about that. And I said, you, you tell them that it ain't going to be for long. <laughs> um, and, 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 and ultimately what I'm, you know, the interesting thing is because what the provost, what the president said was interestingly, he said, this is the one religious leader on campus that the school probably should be paying for. Because we're a secular university. Right. And this is our secular chaplain. This is the guy who's helping Everybody. all the people on the campus that don't believe in any kind of supernatural reality, find meaning and purpose and belonging and, and all that good stuff. And so um, there's a chance that they, they won't hire me to be the humanist chaplain at, at, at USC, but there's a chance that they'll hire me to be some kind of a kind of a freelance community builder here to help various groups on campus build community. And to, I, I do a lot of lecturing classes already and do a lot of stuff like that. So there's a chance that the university will reach out to me. If they don't, that would be neat. If they, yeah, it would be really neat. Um, if they don't, um, I may end up being the humanist chaplain at McGillicuddy, you know, junior high school in Cincinnati, Ohio, <laughs> where I can afford to be poor. Right. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, hopefully so it I've won't come to that. Living, the, way, the way I've been making a living, is by 
um, counseling and coaching people um, who are, you know, secular folks that are kind of working through religious transitions. And frankly, the thing that I coach most of those people about is that stuff of that book. It's about how to relate to their families that are still believers when they've left the faith. Well, since you mentioned the New York Times article, uh, let me ask you about your own journey out of faith, because that New York Times article really opens with you on a bike ride, getting into an accident, and that kind of changed the way you looked at life. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's funny because the, the bike accident, I mean, I, I did. I, I, I went off the road and, and I got a concussion, and for about a month, I couldn't think straight. And when I recovered from that accident... It didn't change the way I saw the world, but it changed the way I saw myself. I had over 30 years slowly, by the death of a thousand cuts, lost my ability to believe in a supernatural God. But I was a professional minister and I, you know, I, I kept moving theologically. I kept moving. But, but after the bike accident, I looked at my wife and said, you know, I don't think there's anything left. I, I mean, this life is the only one that we have. And I think when I die, I'm going to be dead. And she said, I agree with you. <laughs> but she said, I think you better stop being a professional Christian um, since you don't believe in God or the afterlife or any of that stuff anymore. And it was the moment where I realized, like, this life is short and I don't want to spend the rest of it pretending to believe something that I don't really believe. I want to really live into the truth that I, as I understand it and sort of go like, hey, if this life is the only one that we have – how do you make the most of it? And for me, a big part of making the most of this life was being authentic and, and, and being open with people about who I really am and how I really see the world. It's an interesting thing about uh, how you were, quote unquote, a professional Christian, but you still had these nagging doubts and they were getting louder and louder. How long did you maybe not really believe in God anymore, but still kind of cling to that Christian label? And is that hypocritical? Because we sometimes hear that of uh, clergy members who don't believe in God, but remain in the pulpit because they don't know what else to do for a while. Yeah, I think for me, what, what's interesting is, is that I just kept modifying me, my theology and kept turning down the supernatural. And so the God I believed in was able to do less and less as I got older. And as I, you know, the, the, sort of the, all, as all the prayers were unanswered, I was like, maybe God isn't in control of everything. And maybe, maybe everybody goes to heaven, not just the Christians. And, you know, but the, the last God I believed in heaven was so wonderful. You would have loved him. <laughs> I mean, he agreed with everything I thought and he loved everybody I loved. And he, he, he didn't, he wasn't responsible for any bad thing. And, you know, the problem is, is that by the time you end up with that, kind of a perfect God that you agree with, you realize that he's a, a product of your own invention and it doesn't really have much authority. Now, the truth, you say, how long was it? And I would say that the last couple of years were, were, were these, were, where I had really gotten down to being the most progressive kind of Christian, where God was almost like language for me. Like God was another word for the universe and Jesus was another word for the idea of redemption. And, you know, and in a sense, that's where I think a lot of Christians end up is that that Christianity becomes a metaphor for, for, for some deeper truth. But for me, what I realized was, is that it's a really confusing metaphor, because when I said the word God, I, I may have known that I didn't that I just meant the, the natural world as we see it. 
But the people listening to me thought I believed in an activist God who actually supernaturally affects things. I might have thought that Jesus was like a metaphor for the possibility of human change. But like they thought I was talking about a guy who actually rose from the dead three days after he died. And 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 so for me, a big part the reason I didn't become my, I, and my dad at one point said to me, couldn't you just be one of those progressive type Christians, like a John <laughs> Shelby Spong type, yeah. like, like then you'd still have a job and then I wouldn't be so embarrassed by you. Um, and what I said was, is that the problem is, is that language, like messing with the words like that makes you able, like makes it possible for people to stay in the church. But there's all these people for whom that language really confuses the matter and what I quickly got excited about was the idea of saying to young people, especially who didn't believe in God, hey, there's a there's a really amazing way of life of pursuing loving relationships and pursuing, you know, social justice and pursuing a sense of wonder and gratitude. There's a really great way of life and you don't have to believe in God to pursue it. And I knew that if I continued to use any kind of Christian language around that kind of humanism that it would just confuse the hell out of everybody. I think it still confuses the hell out of a lot of people, especially when they hear prog- <laughs> well, when they hear progressive Christians talk about God loves everyone. God is everything and everywhere. It's like at some point it, it just, the, the definition becomes kind of meaningless. Yeah. And, and so th- that progressive Christianity, that concept is, it's a refuge for people who don't believe in God anymore, but they want to keep singing those songs. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and I don't think it's going to be around very long because those people are getting older and you go to a Unitarian Universalist church, you go to a very like progressive Christian church and they're all 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. The future is in looking dead in the eye of a young person who knows that in the, who knows in their deepest part of their heart that, that there is no supernatural reality and saying, okay. What are you going to do? Like, right. how do you make the most of this life? And, that, and that's that where option. the future is in creating a sense of meaning, purpose and belonging that has nothing to do with supernaturalism. And that option wasn't there a decade ago or so, or at least a viable option wasn't there. So, of course, those people joined Unitarian churches, progressive Christian churches. And now a lot of people are growing up realizing, oh, yeah, I can be perfectly happy and I don't need God in my life. So they're not and, joining know, these yeah, churches. Not, they're not, not replenishing per- not the pews. Yeah. And not just perfectly happy, but I can be good. Like I can, I can really like what what draws a lot of people into religious communities is not just like, I'm going to get a, like a a tricky reward when I die, even though I get to do a lot of bad things, I'll just get forgiven. No, what attracts them is they want it in the same way that people join a health club because they want to get stronger and fitter. People sometimes go like, I want to be better. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better, a better wife. I want to be a better parent. I want to be a better friend. I want to be a better human being. And they're like, I want to, I want to gather, I want to get involved with something that's going to make me grow into a finer human being. And the, and for so many years, Hammett, people thought that the only way you could pursue that kind of intentional growth was in some religious community. And, you know, I, I'm here to say, you know what? There is a secular way to pursue goodness, and it is gloriously fun. It is. Um, let me let me get to the book itself. The way this 
book actually functions, because you wrote it with your evangelical dad, is that it kind of goes chapter by chapter. You guys alternate. You write a chapter about maybe why you left Christianity. Then your dad writes a chapter about his his response to you leaving Christianity. And you kind of go back and forth that way. What was the actual writing process like? Did you like write a chapter, send it to your dad, have him write the response and just go back and forth that way? Was it something else? You know, the, the book is like a conversation and it grew out of a conversation. When I finally sat down with my dad after that bike accident and said, look, I'm not a progressive Christian. I'm not a liberal Christian. I'm not even a heretical Christian anymore. I'm, an, I'm a post-Christian. I'm done. I'm out. My dad and my mom, they were just devastated by that. And not because they thought I was going to burn in hell. They aren't that kind of Christian. That would have been a lot harder if they were the kind that believed that if you're, if you're not a believer, you burn in hell. What was hard for them was is that that was their tribe. That was our tribe. And they felt like, wow, he, you know, he's no longer part of our, our community. And um, my dad was just – he was so sad. And he called me a couple weeks later and he said, I can't wrap my head around this, man. I, I need to talk with you. I need to understand. And he said, I don't want to debate you. I, I know I, I can tell. I can see from the look in your eye that you're not coming back. He said, but I just need to understand what happened. And whether it was my fault and, and, and what's, what, what it means to you and what are you going to do now? And so we went on a trip together. We went to England. He was speaking there and I just tagged along for a week. And we sat in cafes and we walked through parks. And, and, and the main part about this conversation was it wasn't an argument. It was him saying, tell me what it's like for you not to believe in God. Like I want to understand that. And it was me saying – these are the problems. These are the things that don't make sense to me about Christianity. How do you reconcile? Like, how can you possibly stay in that? And about halfway through it, you know, you sort of realize, like, not many families are able to have this conversation. And maybe we ought to write it down. And so the book is really, in some ways, a, recapit- a recapitulation of a conversation that actually happened. It, you make it sound like your dad was shocked that you were an atheist, but I have to imagine that in his own line of work, he had met tons of atheists or people who said they no longer believe in God. And he had, I don't know whether he counseled them or had conversations with them or what, but uh, surely you're not the first atheist he's ever met. So why was he so shocked when you became an atheist? Was it just like, oh, like this is something that happens to other people, not my son. I was an awesome Christian. Uh-huh. Like I was a good Christian dude, man. Like I was, I wasn't some slacker. I was living in the inner city, working with the poor. I was preaching sermons to young people. I, like I was taking orphan kids into my house. Like I was down with the program. And so like, I, I loved being a Christian. I loved that community. I loved the people that, you know, I, now, now the belief system was always the hard part for me. And he knew that. And so he had seen me doing gymnastics all my life to work my way around those ridiculous passages in scripture that are so hard to reconcile and to, to, to work out a theology that made room for gay people and that made room for women. So like he knew that the belief system was hard for me, but I was so ensconced in the community that he just couldn't imagine that I would ever pull out. You didn't have any um, grudge against Christianity. You enjoyed it. you you just didn't, he didn't think that you would leave because of that. Yeah. And, and uh, honestly, like 
I think we all know a lot of ministers who, who, who seem to not believe in God anymore, but they got to stick in there because it's their family, it's their identity, it's their paycheck. You know, I, you know, I always quote Upton Sinclair, who once said that it's very difficult to convince a man to change his mind about something if his salary depends upon him not changing it. Mm-hmm. And I think if your identity depends upon you not changing your mind, you also are, are, are likely to stick. And so it's not that these guys are liars. It's that you, you, you literally, your brain keeps you from asking certain questions because you know you're not going to want to know the answer. The answer is going to lay a heavy trip on you. The answer is going to force you to ch- to change your life, and um, and so I, you know, I spend a lot of time with people who are trying to figure out what do I do with these questions because, you know, the, the implications for me not believing in God are so drastic, and so my dad, I think, I think that was a big part of it was that I was a good Christian and I was I was hanging around a lot of nice Christians, and so he's like. I never got hurt by the church. You know, I was, I was pretty beloved. I, you know, I made a good living in the church. So I think that that was part of it. But the other part of it was, you know, he, you know, I think he's, you know, what he would say later is, yeah, deep down I saw it coming. I, I think he, I think he thought I, he hoped I would make it to the finish line, <laughs> make it till I died or, or, or yeah. at least make it till he died, <laughs> you know? Do um, you, and it's, it's been tough for him. Do you think he understands why you're an atheist now? Yeah, I mean, what? For, and first of all, Hemet, you know, as friendly as you are, that I never call myself an atheist, right? Um, because I never want to be defined by what I don't believe, and because that word has a lot of connotations, especially among Christians, the Christians that I used to, that I'm friends with, like they think that means you're against them. They think that means that you think they're stupid. And one of the things that I had to go to great pains with my dad at the beginning was to let him know that I didn't think he was stupid for still believing in God. Like people don't choose what they believe, you know, people like if they did, like you, I could take you Hemet and I could, I could put a gun to your head and say, I'm going to kill you and all your family. If you don't accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and savior, I'm going to put you on a lie detector test and you couldn't pass even if you were entirely motivated because you really don't believe it's true. And, and you know what? Christians are not stupid. They've been socialized in such a way that it really makes sense for them. It's in, 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 the, in the structure of their, their community, those, those beliefs become plausible. I know because I was in that community for 30 years. And for most of that time, I found a way to believe in a God, even though there was no evidence for it. But after you had had these conversations, did he at least kind of get your perspective on it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think he totally gets my perspective. As a matter of fact, like, you know, people say to me, like, who, who's the most supportive person of your new work? And I go, like, oh, my parents. My parents think what I'm doing is wonderful. They, I mean, I mean, they wish I was a Christian, but they're like, wait, you go and find kids that are pursuing materialism and pursuing like, you know, are unhappy and, and lonely and you draw them into a fellowship and convince them that the best way to spend their life is by working to make the world a better place. So, you know, how can you argue with that? They're like, that's wonderful. We're so glad that you do this work with young people. We're so glad that, and, 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 you know, my dad taught at the university of Pennsylvania for years. He said, you know, he knew tons of secular people there. And he said, they would often say to him, Tony, I wish I had what you have because I'd love to be part of a community like you're part of. And he said, I didn't have a secular community that I could point them to and say, there's a place where you can go and raise your kids with people who share your values 
and sing songs about doing good in the world and, you know, and, and read books and use those books to, to transform your relationships in positive ways. He's like, man, he said, if you'd have been at at university of Pennsylvania, then I'd have been sending you tons of people. And so my parents are hugely supportive of what I do. And I think he really gets what it means to me to, I, I think my dad even gets the idea that for me, the reality of death, far from making life seem meaningless, makes it infinitely precious to me and makes me that much in, incredibly determined to squeeze every ounce of goodness out of it. And so now he's very understanding. I mean, honestly, by the time we were finished reading, re- writing that book, I was thinking that maybe he was just going to come over and join us. <laughs> I was hoping. Did you, was there anything in the draft you saw from his end as when he was writing his chapters that you're like, I didn't know that about him or vice versa that he maybe that never came up in your conversations, but your dad read about it when you wrote about it. There was a lot he didn't know about me. And there was a lot he didn't know, especially about our way of life. Like, I, I, I just don't think he understood. For instance, I, there's a whole chapter where he says, I don't see how you can have a moral, a moral code without, without an, you know, God. And and you've gotten that question a thousand times. And and like, I think he was surprised, like, oh, you have a really cogent answer to that question. Like, yeah, man, my whole life depends on having a cogent answer to that question. But like, he hadn't really been around, he had been around angry atheists, but he hadn't been around a lot of humanists who were as committed to goodness as he was. And he didn't know the arguments that we use to motivate ourselves to keep pushing forward. And so, you know, now you say, was there anything that he wrote that was surprising to me? Hell no. I could have written his chapters. Like I lived that (laughs) life for 30 years. This is, this is always the thing that surprises me that what you just said doesn't surprise me one bit, but for someone like your father, who is as steeped into Christian culture as you could be, I would think they would have heard the atheist arguments their entire life and they would know how atheists respond to those arguments because then they would just say, oh, yeah, I mean, atheists like to say this, but here's the response to that, the apologetic you know what, route Emmett, to it. You, you know this very well. Yeah. That you listen to somebody one way when you're loading up to, to try to, to argue back. You listen to, you listen to their arguments. But you listen to them one way when you're trying to beat them and you listen to them another way when you're trying to love them and trying to understand them. And in the same way that atheists often don't really listen to Christians and they don't really hear why they're staying in the faith, they don't really understand. A lot of times Christians don't really listen to their secular family members because they're so they're so bent on trying to change their mind and save their soul, that they don't say, let me, uh, let me really understand this person as they are. Let me, let me really understand what, how it works for them. And so they're so caught up in trying to win the argument, they can't listen. And in this, 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 I think maybe was the first time that my dad wasn't trying to be a witness for Jesus he was just trying to really listen to a secular humanist and understand them because that's my son and I want to be close to him. And I think for the first time he heard what it means to pursue goodness without God. 
And going back to what you just said, what do you think is something atheist, or at least the angry atheist you mentioned, what, what do we not get about why Christians remain in the church despite, you know, any number of reasons we might think they should leave? One of the main things that I think people don't get is because people will joke with me sometimes and they'll say, I bet you feel really embarrassed for, you know, all those times when you said that you heard the voice of God or you felt the Holy Spirit or the Spirit moved, you know, like like now that you know that there is no God, I, you know, like you were lying and, and, and you must feel really embarrassed by that. And I'm like, oh, no, I heard the voice. I felt the Holy Spirit like that. That stuff happened. Wait, wait, what are you talking about? There is no God. You don't believe in any supernatural force. Oh, I don't. You're right. I have a completely different interpretation of those transcendent moments, but they happened. Like if you don't believe in transcendence, if you don't believe in kind of transcendent moments, I always joke with people, you haven't used the right drugs. You haven't had sex with the right partner. You haven't been to the right rock concert. Like what, what, what atheists don't understand about Christians is is that they put themselves in situations where transcendence becomes possible. Like you're, it's late at night. You, you've eaten a lot of sugary food. You're singing songs in a candlelit auditorium with 500 people. You're swaying, singing at the top of your lungs. God is awesome. Our God is an awesome God. And you say, and something happens in that room? Yes, Something happens in that room. A sociologist would call it collective effervescence. Um, you know, neuroscientists would show you the parts of the brain that fire off. But like, yes, something happens. And whatever, whatever narrative you're in when it happens, it, it confirms it and makes it real. And so what I think a lot of times atheists don't understand is they think that this person is propping up this belief system you know, because it's lucrative or because it's somehow helpful to them or because it gives them a superior air or some kind of advantage in society or it comforts them with the ocean of death. And what I'm here to tell you is, no, they felt something. Something really happened. And and if you don't if you don't take seriously the intensity of the personal experience with God, you're never going to be able to have a meaningful conversation with a believer. One of the things I notice about a lot of atheists is, you know, we will go after some of the fundamentalists in any religion. I mean, that's pretty low hanging fruit there. It's easy to pick on them and their beliefs and their hypocrisy. Um, one of the things your dad is known for is focusing his own ministry on the words of Jesus, not the other parts of the Bible. You know, some preachers might reference to slam gay people, women who have abortions, etc. And that's all well and good. I mean, that's, that's kind of like what I wish more Christians were like. Um, but part of that makes me wonder, do you think your dad is still selling a lie of sorts? And should atheists like me spend any time trying to take down people like your dad? Or is that a waste of time? And I should go after like the Pat Robertson sorts. Well, I, I'll say two things. I mean, that's a great question. First of all, it's not like it's a lie if you know it's not true. Um, if you if you think it's true, you're not lying you're mistaken. And do I think my dad is mistaken about the deepest truths of the universe? I do. Um, do I think he's lying? I don't. He's sincere. And um, the good news is, is that because he, he is a loving person, and a lot of people are loving people, and a lot of Christians and Muslims and, 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 and Buddhists are loving people, they, they bend their scriptures and they bend their theologies 
to try to make them as loving as possible. And so, yeah, the Jesus my dad proclaims is a lot nicer than Jerry Falwell's or that Pat Robertson's or or like uh, who's the guy that Franklin Graham or like who's the who's the asshole of the day in evangelical Christianity? Like, you know, like, yeah these guys are preaching a God who's good with gay, who, who loves gay people and who cares about the poor and is fighting for social justice. And you know what my attitude is? Leave them alone. Go after the bad guys. Because the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of people are going to believe in God for the rest of their lives. And I'd way rather have them following Christians like Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo than following the bad ones. And so in some sense, I want my dad to draw to draw Christians more towards these values. And the weird thing is, of course, I also believe that the more Christians are drawn towards that kind of Christianity, the more likely it is that eventually they'll look back at their Bible and go, you know what? If this stuff doesn't make sense. Like these values are what make me not think that maybe this whole God thing isn't true in the first place. I mean, the best way but the, the, the most efficient way to get somebody to like leave behind the negative stuff of supernaturalism is to pull them towards the good stuff. And, 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 and you say, like, are you saying that like in the end that may be a way station on their way to secular humanism? It sure has been for a lot of people. It sure has been for a lot of people. And so like I got a lot of friends who are in Christian ministry who are trying to draw people away from the poison and draw them towards the love. And I'm not prone to shut them down. I wonder how many atheists would disagree because they feel that the bigger issue here, uh, they're fighting this this quest for truth and ultimately any brand of religion, whether it's harmful or just merely mistaken, uh, you got to go after all of them. And I wonder oh, and how Sam, many atheists Sam Harris would say that it's the, my dad's the worst because what he does is he gives cover to sure. all the bad stuff. Um, and so he's a normalizer. And, and so like, yeah, that's, it's the worst kind of thing. Again, like I think if you know true believers, you know that there are a whole lot of people that one way or the other, they're not going to give up faith altogether. And so like that is a false goal. You're like, well, listen, we just need to destroy the whole thing. You're not going to destroy the whole thing in one generation or in two or three. And so like I'm playing the long game here. I'm not just trying to get people to think right. I'm also trying to get poor people fed and trying to get global warming stopped. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to save the species. And so you might want to be a better steward of your energy and go after the, go after the stuff that is the most toxic and dangerous. And, and frankly, honestly, if, if I was a secular organizer, oh, wait, I am. What I would say is, is that I'm going to spend a whole lot less time attacking good forms of Christianity or the less toxic forms of Christianity and a whole lot more time going out after all these people that don't believe in God and aren't doing anything meaningful at all with their lives. Like, that's who I want to get. I want to get the people that don't believe in God and say, hey, have you ever really thought of the implications of this life being the only one that there is? <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about human flourishing. Like, let's talk about how you could really make the most of this thing, because it ain't by making a bunch of money and screwing a bunch of people. It's by it's by developing a bunch of loving relationships and making the world a better place for others. That's where your flourishing is going to come in. Let's cultivate some wonder. Let's get some stuff going here. And so for me, I'm just like, you know, that attacking Christianity thing, not only doesn't it seem to work at like pulling people out of Christianity very often, 
but it also doesn't seem to work at rallying secular people in a way that makes them politically powerful or makes them a force for good in the universe. Sounds like most of your ire is aimed then at the apathetic more than anyone who might just be wrong about something. It isn't ire. It's pity. <laughs> it's pity. Like I'm like I'm here in a French restaurant eating the finest food and I see somebody out there eating a hot dog and I want to say to them, you know, there, there's better food than that. And they go, no, I, fuck you. I want my hot dog. <laughs> like, you know, like – I, I feel sad for those people. Like, like there's better stuff to do than sitting around in a room telling yourself you're right and everybody else is stupid. There's just a better life. And, and that life involves gathering people together and saying like, okay, so we don't believe in God. So how do we use science and how do we use reason and how do we use logic to pursue the stuff that we really care about, to pursue the stuff that will really make us happy, to make things better. And so like for me, like, no, I got no ire for apathetic or angry atheists. I just got a lot of compassion. I'm like, wow, you re that's really what you want to do with your life? <laughs> Let me ask you one last question. Uh, now that, you know, you have that New York Times profile, you and your dad have a film coming out too, kind of documenting your journey. I'm huge, Hammond. I'm huge now. You're huge now. Well, here's, here's the question. Now that you've gotten more publicity, what has the reaction been like in your father's circles? I mean, do they think uh, Tony Campolo handled the situation well, or do they think he screwed up because you left the faith? Well, first of all, like, we, I, I hate anyone. I, I, here's who I have ire for. I have ire for anybody who thinks when a 50-year-old man after 30 years of evangelical Christian ministry leaving the faith, when they, when they chalk that up to my dad. Like, <laughs> come on, man. Like, do I not have As if he was supposed to control your decisions at that age. My God. No, that's, 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 anyway, that, that's his own funny. Like, I, I feel bad for my dad to the degree that people blame him. I'm just like, are you kidding me? I think ultimately that Christians that read this book should come away really admiring my dad because I think he embodies a lot of their highest values. The chief of which is, is that love triumphs over judgment. And I think my dad does judge me as being wrong. But it's very clear to me that his love for me, it's very clear in this book that his love overcomes that. And, you know, it's funny, like, I, I, I won't quote myself at length or quote, quote us at length, but the last, uh, the last few paragraphs, the last, last few sentences of the book, um, you know, one of the things that we say is, it may well be that one day, someday, Bart will see that the heavenly, that, that my heavenly vision is realized and understand for all time that he was entirely mistaken about where it came from. Or perhaps if Bart is right, Tony will close his eyes in the end and never discover that this mortal life was the only one he had in which to pursue that vision. In the end, undeniably, each of us believes the other is missing out on something infinitely valuable by persisting in his foolishness. What neither of us believes, however, is that the other is a fool. As we said at the beginning, while we come to it differently, each of us always reaches the same conclusion about this life. Love is the most excellent way. Moreover, each of us is both sure and content that the other has found that way. For now, at least, that is enough. And if there's anything I hope people 
get from this book. And if there's anything I hope people get when I counsel them and about talking to their families is that they get to the place where each of them looks at the other and says, I think you're completely wrong, but I think you're living your life in a really good way. I said this, uh, and you guys are nice enough to quote me, uh, I think on the back of the book, but you're on it, baby. I am right there. Um, it really is a nice way. It's one of those books that you could give to a Christian or an atheist, especially someone who's had to deal with the same sort of situation where their family doesn't get why they believe this stuff and they're trying to reconcile those differences. It's a really nice way of sharing both perspectives, putting them both together, and hopefully it'll spur more conversations among those families where it's been really hard to to talk about this issue. So, Man, uh, I hope so. I hope so, too. Uh, the book is Why I Left, Why I Stayed. It. This is Bart Campolo once again. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It is always wonderful to talk to you, man. I'll talk to you soon.